following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. Good evening, everybody. All right. We had a group come sing here one time, and uh, the guy's name was Zach Williams. And uh, y'all liked old Zach, didn't you? You got pain, he's a pain taker. You feel lost, he's a way. I asked him if I could sing with him, he said no. You need healing, saving. He's a prison shake and savior if you got chains. But he sung another song that I probably sing more than that song. He sung a song called Fear, He's a Liar. He'll take your breath, take your happiness. Fear is a liar. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. God is with us. There will be no plague come nigh to thy dwelling. God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. Yea, though I walk through the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I've got a key. I've got him with me. His rod and staff comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. And all I'm going to see is goodness and mercy all the days of my life Follow me. So listen, listen, listen. I got a little thing delivered to me on, on a text two days ago. And they talked about the fear of 2000, the fear of 2001, the fear of 2002, the fear of 2003, all the way to 2020. Every year we've had a fear that's going to kill us. But I promise you, hallelujah, God is with his church. Now, now, that's not my subject tonight. I, uh, I wasn't shaking hands tonight. I was trying to be kind. But I'm going to be on that porch on Sunday. And I'm going to pat your back and I'm going to welcome you. Because you're a part of something that's bigger than this world. You're a part of another world. And God knows how to take care of his kids. He knows how to encamp angels around about them that fear him and love him. And God's going to do that. So you go to bed tonight and you sleep about 16 hours on that. And wake up tomorrow afternoon saying, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. Stand to your feet and clap your hands for Jesus Christ right now. Amen. Yeah. Woo. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord shall be praised. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Woo! 
So at the end of service tonight, even though we're on stay standing, even though we're talking about Solomon's secrets, we're going to pray with families, pray for families. We're going to bring our families. We're going to step out in the aisle and we're going to bless the families tonight because I think it's just time to do that. It's time to bless our families. Folks, we are one month away today from a Saturday night before Easter. One month. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So do this. Blink your eyes once, twice, three times, we're there. That's how fast the world is spinning. I love you very much. And we're going to have a Saturday night service. We're going to do four on Sunday. We're going to have a great, great Easter time. We planned a lot of things already, but we talked about it today. We got all excited in our staff meeting. And if you want to get excited, come sit in on a staff meeting. You'll run out of here. Because we believe that God has great plans and designs for the church. I'm glad to have my dear friend James Isbell here tonight. He's my buddy all the way from Dallas. And uh, he's the stadium builder. And he's an amazing man. And he just got through with the one in Las Vegas for the Oakland or the Las Vegas Raiders, whatever. He built that one for them. And that was his last one. So he's kind of semi-retired. And he likes to come down here and. He likes this church. And so some of you folks need to go by and kind of like him because he kind of likes this church. Everybody say, I love you, James. Everybody say, the way up, the way up. Is, down. is down. Solomon's secrets. We're going to talk about it. Turn to somebody and say, I'm going to help the pastor. <laughs> Proverbs 29 says, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. You may be seated. So I've got a little buddy in this church. She's 10 years old. She takes notes on me like a grown adult. She takes pictures when she can't get the notes. And so she texted me today and said, can I ask what you're speaking on tonight? That's the cutest text. And I said, yes, ma'am, you can. I'm talking about humility and pride. And so she didn't write back like, wow, that's exciting. <laughs> but she's taking notes right now. I love that youngin. There's an old West Texas saying that goes like this, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. <laughs> but I got to admit to a couple of vices in my life, and one of them, when our girls were younger, we, we would put them to bed early, and Patty and I enjoyed watching this quirky television sitcom called Seinfeld. <laughs> For those who are unfamiliar with the program, where have you been? <laughs> one of the central characters is a stocky, short, middle-aged, bald guy named George Costanza. And he's a loser in every conceivable way. He's chronically unemployed. He lives at home with his parents. And he continually strikes out with women. In one episode, George, tired of his mediocre existence, has an idea how to change his life. He wants to start doing the exact opposite of what he would normally do. So instead of ordering tuna fish on toast for lunch, he requests chicken salad on white bread. Big difference. And when a beautiful girl flirts with him, he acts boldly instead of timidly. And in meetings at work, he speaks up instead of remaining silent. As a result, George suddenly experiences tremendous success in his life, all because he chooses to act contrary to his natural impulses. Although George is an agnostic, his actions in, these, in this episode demonstrates a basic principle of the Christian life. The way to succeed in this life, as well as the one to come, is to do the opposite of what comes naturally. For example, Jesus told us that instead of holding on to our life, 
we should give up our life. Instead of hating our enemies, we should love our enemies. Instead of retaliating against an offender, we should forgive our offender. But perhaps the greatest example of acting contrary to our natural inclination is found in Matthew 20. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Jesus does not condemn those who desire success and significance in life. He never condemns that. Rather, he clearly teaches that the opposite way is the more significant path to achieving those goals. The world says, look out for number one. Jesus says, look out for others. The world says, destroy your opposition. Jesus says, love your opposition. The world says, hold on to your rights. Jesus said, let go of them. I got you. The world says rule others. Jesus says serve others. The world says promote yourself. Jesus says humble yourself. A thousand years before Jesus' time, Solomon understood this godly principle. Genuine humility is crucial to a successful life. Say amen to that. And laced throughout the book of Proverbs are strident warnings against pride. Now I'm going to read some real quickly. You can take pictures, get your camera out. You may not have time to write these down. Proverbs 8.13 says, Pride, arrogance, the evil way, and the perverted mouth. God said, I hate it. Hebrews 11 says, When pride comes, so does dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 15 says, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16 says, Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 18 says, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. And then the text tonight, Proverbs 29, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. One theme in all these verses, ladies and gentlemen, is that pride is the prerequisite for failure, but humility is the prerequisite for success. Someone said pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. A person infected with pride will ultimately fail. A person demonstrating humility will ultimately succeed. Any book on personal success is incomplete without a discussion of the subject of humility. Humility is probably the most misunderstood word in the whole Bible. Dr. W.A. Criswell, used to pastor First Baptist Church in Dallas, used to keep a book on the coffee table in his office that always attracted attention. The bound volume was entitled, My Humility and How I Achieved It. And visitors would open the book out of curiosity to find hundreds of blank pages because you only find books with humility in the title. The reason? Publishers of books know that humility does not attract widespread readership. And when we imagine humble people, we tend to conjure up images of milk toast men or cowering women. No wonder we are less than enthusiastic about humility. Solomon says that without this character quality, we're doomed to be a failure in life. I'm talking to you. Perhaps the best way to understand humility is to look at the opposite. That's the word pride. Everybody say pride. pride. Say P-R-I-D-E. 
Say P R D E. And the middle letter is I. That's how you remember pride. Pride is the attitude that credits ourselves with our successes and blames others for our failures. A prideful person believes that every good thing in his life is the result of his own hard work. He feels that any conflict, in any conflict, he's right and the other person is wrong. He is convinced that he possesses all the skills necessary to handle any problem that arises. And he has no need for other people and he certainly has no need for the God that we preach about here tonight. There's a synonym for pride. It's called arrogance. And in the Hebrew it means to grow wide or large. An arrogant person has a large estimation of himself. Muhammad Ali when he was a world heavyweight champion was on a jumbo jet one day. He had been seated in the first class section of that jet. Preparing for takeoff, the flight attendant came by and politely asked Ali to fasten his seatbelt. He looked at the woman and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. That's pride. Without hesitation, the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> Ali put his seatbelt on. I think God despises pride. Because of what it produces in our life. First of all, pride naturally results in ingratitude. Say ingratitude. It naturally results that. It naturally brings that. When a person assumes that every good thing in their life is a result of their giftedness and their hard work, and their luck, we fail to express proper gratitude to God. When I get my daughter's when I used to get my daughters and still when I buy them gifts, I don't want them going around and telling everybody, you know, this just came to me because I got this thing about me. No, no. I'm a father that knows how to give good gifts to my kids. But I have a heavenly father that knows how to give great gifts to us. And when God blesses you with something in your life, you don't need to start making excuses that, man, I tell you what, it's my swag. It's my dad. <laughs> it ain't none of that. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light in whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Say it all. It's all from him. If we're blessed, we're blessed because of him. Secondly, ingratitude leads to independence. It's what pride is. When we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are responsible for our successes, then we come to the conclusion that we really don't need God and we become a George Costanza. We become almost agnostic. In Deuteronomy, Moses warned the Israelites to remember that God was the source of their blessing. I love this in Deuteronomy 8. He said, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Can I say something? The worst thing you could ever do is forget where God brought you from. God's been good to all of us. You know, Satan's fall from heaven can be linked to pride and gratitude and independence. Originally, Satan was one of the archangels his name was Lucifer, and he was over the worship, the music of heaven. 
And Ezekiel described him in 28, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your own splendor. Satan forgot that he was the creature, not the creator. He forgot he was a creature and not the creator. Can I tell you something? There's two things you need to know. There is a God and we're not him, okay? Okay, everybody got that? He failed to give God credit for his beauty, his splendor, his musical gifting. His ingratitude was his flawed conclusion that he really did not need God. Hear his declaration. I will ascend to the heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend upon the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We know the story. God cast Lucifer and one third of the angels out of heaven. Can I tell you something? When the devil gets after you and one of his angels starts chasing after you, remember God's got two to fight the one. Because God kept two-thirds of the angels and cast just one-third out. Anytime, anytime something gets after you, you got the winning advantage. You got the majority because God's still for you and he's got something great around you to take care of you. God cast Lucifer out of heaven. There he established a shadow empire based on a lie that life apart from God is both possible and preferable. God despises this attitude intensely. Pride goes before destruction. By contrast, let's talk now. Humility is the attitude that recognizes that any good thing in our lives is a result of what God and our other people have done for us. Humility involves three components. Let's talk about them real quickly. Number one, humility has an accurate self-evaluation. We have to understand, we look in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror cracks on me. <laughs> and it should on you. If someone asked you to identify your three greatest strengths, what would you and how would you respond? Someone were to ask you to identify your three greatest weaknesses, would you be able to do so? Do you know your blind spots? And when it comes to that, most of us go to one of the two extremes. Pastor, I'm just this lowly worm. How could God ever use me? Oh, God, oh, God. Or we go, I am so wonderful. How could the world ever get along without me? you got to find a happy, happy Madison middle. Neither is accurate. Instead, God's Word encourages us to accurately assess both our strengths and our weaknesses. Say, I've got strengths and I've got some blind spots that are called weaknesses. And I need God's help. In all of it. Romans 12 said, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, Paul writing, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allowed to each of us the measure of faith. Everybody say, We all have the measure. Everybody's got the same measure. The Bible doesn't say a measure there, it says the measure. It's the measure. God. God puts it out. He pounds it out in the same way. So don't say that my faith is greater than yours or your faith is greater than mine. God gave you more. No, no, no. It's how you use what's given to you. 
You're going to bury it in the ground, you're going to reproduce it because God's got something good for everybody in this house. Don't go around saying you got less. You got the end of the line. No, you didn't. You got the same God and the same opportunity that everybody around you has. Come on, clap your hands and rejoice in that. Paul uses this verse as a launching pad for his discussion of spiritual gifts. God has given every Christian a unique gift with which to serve him. We each possess such a gift. And that should prevent us from feeling like worthless wretches who cannot do anything right. Or on the other hand, the fact that we don't possess all the gifts should also remind us that we need other people in our life. You need to have an examination of yourself. Number two, authentic appreciation of others. That's what brings humility. You've got to appreciate other people. Why don't you turn to somebody and say, I appreciate you. In fact, I kind of like you. And I'm going to take the kind of out. John Wooden, who served as the coach of the UCLA Bruins basketball team when they dominated college basketball for several years, had this beautiful thing. Now, I want you to listen to it real good. He said, talent is God-given. Be humble. He said, fame is man-given. Be thankful. He said, conceit is self-giving. Be careful. I love it. Genuine humility is built upon the recognition that every good thing in our life is a result of what God or other people have done for us. That's a hard pill to swallow for some people. We have a hard time not attributing our success in life to our own diligence in our own mind. Paul addresses in Corinthians, he said, for who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Oh, that's powerful scripture right there. What good thing in your life cannot ultimately be traced back to God? Your appearance? Pastor, God didn't give me this. This is me. I exercise, I diet. I do too. I exercise a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm really, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really taking it serious. I really am. And, and I know I tease a lot and I self efface myself a lot, but I'm really taking it serious because I am, I am, I'm striving to lose a whole bunch of weight. And I don't want to die to do it. <laughs> I want to be alive. But I am, I'm, 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 on this, I'm on this thing. I'm on this thing, so stay with me. And don't come up to me and brag on me and say, Pastor, you look like you lost weight when I haven't. <laughs> Give me some time. It's going to happen. Psalms 139 said, For thou didst form my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There was a guy come in tonight that had hair all over his head. And I made my famous statement, if I had hair like that, I'd wear it <laughs> any way I wanted to. My appearance came from God. Everybody say my possessions. My wealth is a result of years of hard work and sacrifice. God ultimately determines our financial destiny. Really? Now listen to me. I know that there's people that have more here than have less here. But Job said he shows no partiality to princes nor regard to the rich above the poor, for they all are the work of his hands. Listen to me. Listen to me. 
It's not the matter of money. It's the matter of a principle of having a God in your life. And you need to trust God for everything in your life like a man that's been blessed or a woman that's been blessed trusts God for everything in their life. And what you have to do is this, and this is going to hurt some people. When you make $100, you need to be a tither on that. You know, I think sometimes the difference between blessed and not blessed is what you give back to the kingdom of God. Amen. There's a lot of people can tithe on $10. Oh, I'm going to give a dollar in the offering, but that's as far as they go. Then they make 100 they still give that dollar. Oh, I'm, I'm messing with you right now. I've done going to meddling. But when you understand the principle, understand the principle, you know the taxes of America are massive compared to what God put a tax on us. 10% is not a big tax at all. But God said, if you will do that, I will bless you. And I'll bless you, heaped up, pressed down, good measure, shaken together, running over. He said, I'll, if you'll bring the tithe to the storehouse, I will bless you, I will honor you, and I will bless your children and your children's children. You need to honor, you need to pay giving and pay tithe to the kingdom of God. It's not about a preacher, it's about the kingdom. You know how we're building this church? Because people support the church. I'm off on a track now. I'm chasing a rabbit. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're, we're building a church and we're not asking for money because you are blessing the house of God. But if you're not a giver, then you're not really living. If somebody gets up and walks out right now, I got on your nerves, I know. So stay with me. Don't leave right now. Wait for five more minutes. So your children... My children are the results of a superior gene pool and careful nurturing. Oh, yeah. The Bible said children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is reward. So number three, how to maintain your humility. Appropriate subordination of others' rights, of our rights. We are, we are living in a world of how to please ourselves. Listing all the magazines all the time, five greatest spas in the world, and I read about them, and ten greatest golf courses. I enjoy golf. I do. Four finest restaurants in North America. That's really the theme of our culture today. We're told that since we live limited amount of time on earth, let it go. Live to the fullest. No regrets. Everything we do, our work, our recreation, our relationships, even our benevolence, is selected and nurtured in order to bring pleasure and fulfillment to people, to ourselves. Quite the contrast of the life of Jesus Christ. He did not come to please himself. He came to please the Father. He came to please God Almighty. Look at the life of Christ to find real humility. Philippians 2 said, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Philippians 2 and 5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, he found, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. If Jesus had the same life purpose as many of us have in our life, he would have never given up the perks of heaven to experience the pain of the cross. But Jesus did not live to himself. His singular goal was to please Almighty God. Would you lift your right hand and say, God, let me please you with my life. That's a beautiful prayer. Chuck Swindoll tells the story of a young man named Walter. 
hired by the largest corporation in the world. He started at the bottom in the mailroom. He fantasized about what it would be like to become president or CEO of the company. And one day he spotted a cockroach. He went over to step on it, but before he delivered the death blow, he heard a voice crying, don't kill me, I'm Milton the cockroach. (laughs) And if you will spare my life, I'll grant you all your wishes. And Walter allowed Milton to live. (laughs) Walter wished to become vice president of the corporation. He got his wish. Later, he became the chairman of the board. And he gazed out the top floor of his office and mused to himself, I am Walter, and I'm on top of the world, and no one is more important than me. And one day he heard footsteps on the roof of the office building. He went to investigate, saw a little boy up there on his knees praying. He said, are you praying to Walter, son? And the little boy said, no, sir, I'm praying to God. And Walter, disturbed, went back to his office, found Milton the cockroach. said, I have another wish. I want to be like God. So Milton granted Walter's wish, and the next day Walter was back in the mailroom. That'll keep you up tonight. (laughs) The essence of humility is voluntarily surrendering our rights to achieve a greater purpose in life. So I'm going to close tonight. I'm going to close with true humility and how to achieve it. I'm going to tell you how to achieve true humility. You need to write these down. Number one, you need to admit your mistakes. When you're wrong, admit it. I have been wrong in my correction of my kids. I've been wrong in my conversation with my wife. I've been wrong in some things that I've done in this pulpit. And I have asked for forgiveness because I admit my mistakes. I go home many times saying, you know, I didn't do good. And I don't want to pat on the back. I just admit my mistakes. You've got to understand that we all make mistakes. One Washington pundit observed, he said, the cause of every presidential downfall in this city from Watergate to Monica Gate has not been the scandal itself, but the ensuing cover-up. When will they ever learn that you've got to admit some things in your life? Why do people continue to try to cover up the blunders and lies and rationalizations instead of admitting our mistakes? We've goofed. we messed up. Maybe we're fearful of the consequences of our errors, or maybe we assume that acknowledging our fault demonstrates weakness. Proverbs 28 said, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. It was only after David admitted his mistakes that he regained the respect of the people and received the forgiveness of God. He said, I'm wrong, Nathan, I'm wrong. Number two, you've got to share credit with others. This is how you get humbled. You've got to share credit. The greatest accomplishment in Solomon's life was the building of the house of God, the temple, the massive project that involved thousands of workmen and millions of shekels. And when dedication day arrived at the temple, Solomon was careful not to hog the limelight. He gave proper recognition to the one who was the most responsible for the success. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven, above or on the earth, beneath. He gave credit to where credit was due. One way to demonstrate humility is by sharing the credit with our, of our accomplishments together. Expression of appreciation both verbally and monetarily motivate people like nothing else. I want to tell you as a pastor, pastors need to remind the congregation that they are just one player on the team. And I will remind you tonight, it takes every one of us, not just me. It takes us all. 
It takes Pastor Brad. It takes our other pastors. It takes all the leaders of the church. It takes all the ushers. It takes all the parking attendants. It takes all the singers. It takes all the people that walk in the door. Everybody matters in this church. And I preached that on Sunday, and I'm going to emphasize it again tonight. It takes everyone, not just one, to get the job done. you got to share it. President Ronald Reagan had a plaque on his desk that said this, There is no limit to the good a person can do if he's willing to let someone else take the credit. Number three, refuse to honk your own horn. Refuse to be your own press agent. Let other people handle the job for you. He that tooteth his own horn toots the small end. Proverbs 27 said, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. We somehow think that if we do not tell our accomplishments, they will go unnoticed. Truth is, when we try to shine the spotlight on ourselves, we only set ourselves up for humiliation. Jesus was at a dinner party one day and he saw an interesting social thing, a phenomenon that occurs even today. Some of the attendees started seating themselves at tables reserved for the honored guests. And Jesus offered some very practical advice to those who would try to advance up the social ladder through self-promotion. He said, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, give place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. It's humiliating. Sitting at the head table, then a tap on your shoulder, and the VIP has arrived. Let me tell you something. And you are led away to a table in the back of the room. Matthew said, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And the fourth thing in this thing called humility is be willing to give up your rights. You've got to give up your rights. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. If Jesus Christ can make that statement, we ought to be able to make that statement in our life. Jesus came to earth to meet our needs, not his. We're not merely his tools to accomplish his objective. He sacrificed his comfort, his pride, his rights for greater purpose. I put this in at the last of my sermon. Husbands, if you want to give your wife a cardiac arrest this week, tell her you have a few hours available this week and you can help her around the house with any chores that she wants. It's the big one. Mom, tell your kids, this afternoon after school is your time. What do you want to do? Employers, dumbfound your employee. Go into his or her office tomorrow and say, I know you're under a lot of pressure right now. What can I do to help lighten your load? That's what it's about, folks. I close. Abraham Lincoln's one of my heroes. I love Abraham Lincoln. I've read about everything I can get my hands on with Lincoln. And biographers tell of an occasion when Lincoln visited General George B. McClellan, his general-in-chief during the Civil War. McClellan had been paralyzed with inactivity and was becoming increasingly ineffective with his job. And Lincoln wanted to visit with him personally to encourage him to start acting more aggressively. All McClellan ever did was walk up and down the street in front of the White House and just parade shine the boots, wear the uniform, and parade. They never fought. 
and not want to appear harsh, the president took the unusual step of going to visit the general in his home and not calling him in and scolding him in the office. And on the night of November 13, 1861, Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward traveled to McClellan's home. And when they arrived, a servant informed Lincoln and Seward that the general was at a wedding and would be home shortly. He ushered them into the parlor to wait for General McClellan. About an hour later, General McClellan returned home, and upon hearing that the president was waiting in the parlor, the general marched upstairs and went to bed. President's waiting on you, and you go to bed. The Secretary of State was so outraged by the intentional insult by the general to the president, he demanded Lincoln fire the general immediately, but Lincoln, Lincoln refused. This is some of the greatest words you'll ever hear. Lincoln said, this is no time to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity. He said, I would hold the reins of McClellan's horse if it would end this war and bring us victory. Who but Civil War buffs remember the name of George McClellan? But victory ultimately came to Abraham Lincoln just as it will be everyone who remembers Solomon's secret. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Secret number eight, done. Just solid word teaching. And I want to say something to every one of you here tonight. I want to say something to you. Don't let yourself get swelled up. Don't let yourself get prideful. Remain humble. Remain teachable. I tell people all the time, this is the greatest body of believers that I've ever been associated with. I pastored a wonderful church in Dallas. We brought it, brought it in and had some success. I pastored a church that was an older church in Louisiana, and it was already successful before we got there. And they were wonderful people, but it wasn't, it wasn't where I needed to be. But when I came to Austin, Texas, I asked God to give me some people that just were hungry for him. And you know what, folks? This church is a hungry church. Even after 30 years of pastoring, I still feel the hunger of people's lives to be in the house of God and to be here. And I'm just asking in the name of the Lord, don't let pride rob you of something great in your life. Let the kingdom of God come to you and let you know where your strength is. My strength and my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And there is nobody, nobody like our God, nobody. Now I want you to stand. It's 835. We dismiss at 840. I want you to stand. And I want you to take your family by the hand because we're going we're gonna to pray tonight. And we all can't get up around here, but I would like for you to do something. I'd like for you to just move a little bit. You know, just make a little move. Make a little move. Like get out in an aisle or step forward or step out in an aisle or step here. Step. Just don't be right here. Say, well, I'm just going to stand right here. I want you to move. I want you to make a step because that shows significance to God that I made a step. It may be lateral, it may be front, it may be back. It all matters. Just make a step. Get somebody by the hand and step somewhere right now. Would you do that? Just step somewhere. Patty, would you come? Would you come, baby? Would you come? Would you come, Patty? Come on. Amen. Is Patty here? 
She's gone? Okay. Maybe it was her that walked out when I was teaching on tithe. Our family would appreciate your prayers this week. We had a very difficult week. We had to go to Houston and close the things and shut down everything for the family. My father-in-law, Bishop Frank Jones, and my mother-in-law, Joyce Jones. They're gone now, and so we went in and had to empty the house and move things away, and it was touching, it was hard, it was difficult. My wife is uh, hurting just a little bit, just a little. And uh, we need your prayers. We really do. But I want you to lift up your family's hands now. Lift them up. And I'm going to bless you in the name of the Lord. I'm going to bless you. Dear Father, I thank you for these precious people right now. And I, I love them. And I honor them. And I give myself to this congregation in our 31st year. We're so happy that you're still here. We're with us and you're a part of us. And God, we have some of the greatest people, not just in Austin, not just in Texas, but in the whole America and around the world, worshiping right here. You have brought so many continents, so many different kind of people, so many different social orders of people, so many kind of educated people, so many kinds of people that have made up this socioeconomic strata that we call CLC. Now, Lord, we have fathers here and we have mothers here and we have children here. And we have people that we reach to in our family. We reach to another state. We reach to another country. We reach because we have families all around this great globe. And God, here's what I'm asking for right now. I'm asking for everybody in our reach, in our reach, that you'd make up a hedge around about them. Lord, that you'd send a hedge around about them and that our faith would help you build that hedge that we're gonna trust in the Lord and we're not gonna allow fear to come and overtake our family. We're going to trust you. We're going to believe in you. Fear, you are a liar. You are a liar. And this church will know the goodness of God through all this situation, this eclipse. This eclipse, God, that has gone so viral in people's minds. God, save us. Heal us. Deliver us. Make the light shine where we are. Make the glory abound where we stand. And make your peace be a part of our life where we work. In Jesus' name, let people understand that we're going to walk through this thing with no fear. No fear. No fear. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We will walk and not be weary. We shall run and not faint and walk and not be weary. In Jesus' name, let it happen. God, I pray. I pray for my children. I pray for my home. I want your dads, I want you dads and moms to pray with yourself right now. Come on, 
I pray for my house. I pray for my house. I pray for our house. I pray for this church. I pray for every house in this building. May the grace of God and the peace of God and the joy of God reign in our lives and in our hearts. And may we not have any fear. May we lay down tonight and say, I trust in you, Lord. I trust in you, Lord. I believe in you, God. Let us go, God, viral with you. Let us go viral with our prayers. Let us go viral with our faith. Let us go viral with our hearts and trust you to believe that you can do all things even in a world that is so afraid and so fearful right now. For it's in Jesus' name. Say it with me. Jesus' name. He said, signature everything in my name. Say, Jesus' name. Say, in the name of Jesus, I receive this and I take this to my house. Now look at me now. When you get home tonight, when you get home tonight, I want you to go to every door and say, I plead the blood over this door. I want you to go to every house and every room and say, I plead the blood over this house. Come on now. I plead the blood. I plead the blood. When the death angel passed over the Israelites in Egypt, he couldn't get past the blood of a four-footed lamb. We'll have the blood of a two-footed Savior at our house. The blood of the lamb. Satan, you're not coming. You're not going to take our house. We're going to have our house dedicated to a cause greater. In Jesus' name, turn to your neighbor and say, I believe it. Say, I receive it, and I take it to my home, and I love my God, and he's awesome. Now clap your hands real big right now.